Thank you, James and Noreen. We appreciate that lift in our worship service this morning. James, not every college graduate who's in postgraduate school will come back to the church where he began his journey with Christ uh, just to make the, take the expense and the time to come back and uh, share his gift of music. And we thank James for doing that. He continues to come back just when we think that we've lost him forever, he shows up. We're so glad when he does. And thank you, Noreen, for patiently assisting him. You know what? Most of you, including that includes me, has little understanding of what goes on every Sunday to bring the sounds of worship to every person. You know, you think, oh, they got a few guitars, they got a drummer, they got a piano, they got some keyboard, they got some stuff. All that stuff is plugged in. And sometimes plugs have personalities of people. But sometimes it just doesn't work right. And then sometimes the people in the sound booth get what they get this morning. I took the mic fixed for me, and somebody's talking to me. And I was listening more than I was paying attention. I dropped my mic, and it shattered everywhere, kind of. Some kind person on the back, we, we won't say it was Randy, let me know that those things were expensive. <laughs> and they had to come up with another mic immediately. So today, let's give a hand to the people who work the sound booth, because they're a team. They're not all there today, but they're always here. Yes, I know you're worried. They gave me a lot of time, right? Even for me. That's a good thing. They're giving me time to work out my three weeks out of the pulpit and get back in shape. If I, if I quit early, somebody please tell me and I'll start up again. I picked this passage not because it seemed like at first that was what we were going to preach about in the, the remainder of this sermon series, which is called Building a Better You. But rather, I picked this passage because I think it is a seed that makes building a better you clearly defined, and also calls us to the task that is universal as Christians. What I mean by that is when Jesus found those disciples and solicited them to come with him, he said simply this, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, since that time, that phrase has been repeated, oh my goodness, to a lot of people who are not fishermen, to a lot of people who don't even know what it means to catch a fish, and certainly wouldn't want to take it off their hook. But definitely that phrase has caught on with the church throughout the ages. So when he came and told them to do that, let's just start simply with that idea and realize what he was telling these ordinary fishermen, ordinary people, ordinary working class people. Not great people of great, huge intelligence necessarily. And even as he continued to call the other disciples, some of them he didn't call to become fishermen because they weren't fishermen They were tax collectors. They were other things. They were brothers of other disciples that were called. So every time that Jesus issued a call, it was a personal call, fit to meet their needs. But some of the things he said to these first fishermen are pertinent to everyone who is called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, who believes in Christ for their salvation. Three little words. Come, follow, and become. Those are the three phrases I'm interested in today and will continue to be interested in because they fit right in with what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks. Leave, come, implies leave where you are and come with me. First thing we have to do as Christians is leave our past behind as it's forgiven. We have to move on. Come means leave behind some of the safety and security you feel in the past and move forward to that which is your future. 
Follow means to follow the one that is the object of your leadership. Follow Jesus. Come and follow me means to learn the ways of your teacher. And when you begin to learn the ways of your teachers for a specific reason, in learning from your teacher, you find yourself becoming more like your teacher. You find yourself being transformed, changed over your lifetime. Not just the first few years you're a Christian, but your entire life. You're being continually transformed into the image of Christ. These words are spoken often at churches. Unfortunately, they're not always put into practice, are they? What would you have said if I said, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus Christ? You would have probably said, well, it means to come to church. It means to give some money to the church every now and then. It means to read the scriptures every now and then. It means to pray some. It means to go to heaven when you die. And that's the part I like the best, right? We like that part. Well, following Jesus entails a lot more learning than that. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I'm a sucker for this kind of scripture. Because to me... Salvation, in the good Wesleyan sense of the word, has always been a process since I left seminary. It was firmly implanted in my mind that to be a Methodist meant to follow the teachings of Wesley, who was a follower of Christ, and it meant to understand salvation never is simply a one-time moment event that happens, but rather a whole life that's lived in following and being transformed by the Savior who came to save you. I believe that and I have craved it for every congregation and for every person I've met. Now, sure, there are a few people I met, and early on I prayed more for them for transformation than some others. You can imagine why. Over 35-plus years, you meet some people who are not as far along in their work of transformation. But hear me clearly. Sometimes the hardest people to experience current transformation or those who've been in the church for 40 plus years. Because you see, we love our ruts. We love our spiritual ruts like we love every other rut in our life. And to be transformed means you have to be open to leave behind your past all along and to be willing to follow the example that Jesus sets in Scripture and then accept the transformation that occurs. I know that from a very personal perspective. I know you'll find this hard to believe. But when I first started trying to follow Christ, I was a very reluctant disciple. I know, it's hard to believe, perfect as I am today. It's hard for you to believe that in those early years of being a pastor, it would have been never ruled a crime if somebody would have taken me out and just shot me and told Jesus I died. It wouldn't have been a crime. Not really, because I was pretty dumb. And it was also because I was so dumb that when I was called to preach, I made the mistake, rookie, rookie mistake, of telling the district superintendent, you know, I know i got to go back to college and i got to go back to seminary, but you know, I'm ready to preach. Little did I know that three months later he would come by me one day at another event at our church and stop and say, by the way, in six weeks you need to report to Kalisburg, you're going to be their pastor. I said, what? What would you say? He said, in six weeks you need to go to Kalisburg, Texas, there are three churches there and you're going to be their new pastor. And he said, you said you wanted to preach, right? Uh, yeah, I meant occasionally, kind of, uh, uh, after I knew something, maybe, I just didn't want you to forget me. He says, I have it. You're going there, and you're going to be their pastor on the weekends for the next year. I didn't even know that he was sending me there with a little category, to be supplied. And that to be supplied means you get very little money, you drive a lot of miles, and you, they were with very forgiving people, because they've had other pastors like me who were just starting. 
But I went anyway. I was rough around the edges, to say the least. Sometimes I'm still rough around the edges, some of you are thinking, and you'd be right. Sometimes that's on purpose because certain kind of people are attractive to certain other kind of people. And I like to think I'm a Christian chameleon, meaning that I can change the color of my skin and my actions in such a way that the way I act might be accepted to a lot of different kinds of people. Because I'm a greedy fisherman, it started when I was this tall. We would go fishing. All the millers were fishermen. I was the first one to really seriously break that mold, of the boys anyway, and that was because of basketball. That became more important than fishing, and they both happened at the same time. But until that time, I learned to fish. And you know what fishing is like in a boat? If you're three grumpy older men, that would be my father and my uncles and older brothers. I was a young kid, so that meant I got more latitude. So when you stop the boat to fish, if nobody got a bite quickly, nothing happened. But if somebody got a bite and then got a second fish, and I was sitting across the boat, I was out of my seat over there trying to get in their fishing spot. Because that's where the fish were. No, you're sitting over there. No, I want to be right here. This is where the fish are, right? And so you can imagine the boat kind of was, had a wavy effect with me moving around. Not always appreciated by the men, but they were patient. They allowed the youngster to cheat on their spot and maybe catch their fish occasionally because, after all, I was the youngest one there. Well, you know, that's the way it is with a lot of people who are fishermen in the beginning. They're impatient. In fact, in the commentary of Matthew written by William Barclay many years ago, he has something to say about this selection of, of these fishermen. Like many other scholars, he makes uh, the qualities of a good fisherman makes them also a good fisher for men. He said they have to be patient. They have to learn to wait. They have to persevere, always trying again, resisting discouragement at every point. They have to have courage because the sea could be a dangerous place when a storm arose. They had to have an eye for the right moment in which the fish were going to bite. You could sit out there a long time and not get a bite if you were there in the wrong season at the wrong spot. You had to keep yourself out of sight. That's the part I struggled with because movement and shadows on the water could run the fish away. Nobody told me that. They just told me to sit down, and I thought that meant get up because I was 10, 11, and I thought I had special permission. Now, occasionally I was straightened out about that, as you can imagine, in that day and age. And lastly, he said... And keeping themselves out of sight, they will then become, over time, really good fishermen. I believe every person is called to be a fisherman of other people, to try and reach them. I don't think the church does a very good job of that. I particularly think the United Methodist Church has not done as good a job of that as it could have or should have. Even this church, a model in many ways, has struggled for our membership to grow, right? We struggled. We're beginning to get some steam now. We're beginning to head that way, and we think we see a different future coming for ourselves where the harvest is going to be much more plentiful. But the question arises when you realize this is you've got to ask ourselves, the process for Jesus and these fishermen was come, follow, and be transformed, become fishers of men. What would be his process for us today? I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The good news is he has plans for us today, just like he did those fishermen. The bad news is it's the same plan. You still have to leave behind what you're comfortable with. You still have to follow Jesus and what he showed you and taught you as we have related to us in scriptures. And finally, you have to be willing to accept the transformation that Jesus is offering you. It's hard if you're impatient to become more patient. 
People sometimes still see me today and say, you're, not, you're sure you're not being a little impatient, are you? And I'm saying, yeah, I'm being a little impatient, but you should have seen me when. Because I used to have very little patience with churches or with people, quite frankly. But God taught me some lessons in humility and patience, and they took place over time. So when I asked myself the question that's on those little bracelets for many years that aren't so popular today, although they're still out there, what would Jesus do? I would say he would do the same thing he did then. He would call us to leave our places of security, to follow the Jesus we find depicted in the Scriptures, and to open ourselves up to the transformation so we might better become who we were created to be. Be clear about this. There is not a human other than Jesus who's ever been all that God wanted them to be because we are all stained by sin. Every human being, only Jesus managed to avoid that trap. So that means every one of us has to deal with their current sins and allow the power of grace to transform us so we become better fishermen, if you will, or even clearer, so we become better humans. Now, is it easy being a better human? Is it easy being mature as a follower of Christ? You think it was easy to say on the, hang on that cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, while you were hanging there by the nails in your wrists? While life was dripping out of you, you think that was easy? There was nothing easy about that. And that wasn't the only example of Jesus doing difficult things. Jesus could have used some advice. When he first started his ministry, the boy went back to his hometown. It's hard to preach a sermon in your hometown, isn't it? Jesus found that out, right? Even the prophets is most not accepted in his hometown. And Jesus was a prophet for the world. And he went many places where it was difficult. But there was something unique about this man, Jesus, that the Gospels revealed. He could forgive and would forgive. He could heal and he could see the sick. He could see the hurting. He could analyze who they were, where they were coming from in a perfect kind of way that we can't. But in so doing, he taught us a model to learn as best we can so we might emulate the emotional intelligence of Jesus. We need today, terribly in our world, more emotionally intelligent Christians. Many scientists, social scientists, agree that much more important than intellectual intelligence is emotional intelligence in terms of determining whether or not we're going to be successful human beings. In fact, they've done studies, studies of a group like 85, one study of people who were the valedictorians of the class, and they followed them out. And when they followed them out, they found out that most of them were just marginally effective as human beings, that most of them had not risen any farther in their fields than many others had, In fact, they were surpassed by many who were never the head of their class. And they determined from that study that there's something else more needed even than mental intelligence and mental acuity. So for all of you students out there who are B students and not the 99 students, take heart. You may have more equipment than that person who's making all those A's anyway to be effective in your world. And they determined that what was needed was that thing called emotional intelligence. It's akin to cognitive behavior, but it is not cognitive behavior, but it involves some cognitive behavior. And you say, why are you going psychological on us, preacher? I'm going psychological on you for this reason. I've been studying you folks. (laughs) Yeah, I know you've been studying me too, right? I've been studying folks like you 
for my whole life because I am by nature, no, no gift to me, I'm just inquisitive about people. And I've always, especially in the last 30 of my 37 or so years of ministry, wanted to help people become who Jesus wanted them to be. And it's very frustrating when that process seems to get more and more difficult. And oftentimes when I get to the root of what at least I can determine might be the problem, it's more emotional than it is anything else. It's a problem with the way they think and the way that they relate in their world. Now, while I was looking through pamphlets, book advertisements, and this is a word to all you teachers of the gospel, to all you youth pastors, education people, to all you teachers of Sunday school, to all you parents who are trying to teach your children. Most preachers get their junk mail, and they don't even walk it back to their desk. They're smarter than me. They just throw all that trash in the trash can and forget they ever saw it addressed to themselves. I've got a paper compulsion. It's a small one. It tends to overcome rooms, not just my office. And one of those compulsions is that when I get mail, I want to know what it is before I throw it away. And if they're advertising books about the Christian faith, I will buy them. I might not read them, but if I really like the cover, it looks good on my shelf. And if the titles overwhelm me, I sometimes find things that I wasn't even looking for that God wanted to teach me. Now, sometimes in my ministry, I'm searching, struggling more than others. A few months back, when some things were becoming critical for me as I thought about my ministry here and my ministry with others, and now that I can look back farther than I know I can look ahead, I was looking through one of those pamphlets, flipping through it. Here was a book entitled The Emotional Intelligence of Jesus. And I went, wow, that might fit in with that degree I got in psychology just so I could get in seminary. I thought it might really help me if there's an emotional intelligent quotient, kind of like there's a measure for intellectual intelligence. Could that not be important in people being transformed? Could that not be at the basis of why so many of us struggle? We're willing to work on ourselves physically. Some of us. Don't laugh. We're willing to work on ourselves intellectually. We go to school, see that our kids go to school. We're even willing to work on ourselves relationally. We tell our children to get along, right? We tell our grandchildren to be nice. I told my grandchild to be nice yesterday. He is at my house, not my daughter's house. But I told him in a way he wasn't accustomed to being told. No, I did not spank him. Don't panic. <laughs> Don't you panic either, Sarah. But he wanted to do something. I told him he was acting like a baby, and he wasn't going to do it as long as he acted that way in that house. I'm trying to teach him some self-control. He's not going to learn much of it, but a little at a time, when you're that young, can spare you a lot of headaches later on, right? Do you know what the first and most important emotional context is for a human being to be the best human being they can be? It's self-awareness. Sometimes people do not connect what they're feeling on the inside with the actions they take on the outside. Sometimes people are so out of connection with themselves that they misinterpret, misread, or even fail to notice other people who are right in their midst who are struggling and need their help. Sometimes we're so self-absorbed that we're not self-aware of how we're feeling and what we're doing. Now, some of you are jumping ahead and saying, is this about the school situation? No. Okay, maybe a little. 
but it's more so about life. You are a better employee, a better boss, a better wife, a better husband, a better mother, a better father, a better neighbor, a better Christian, a better disciple of Christ if you find emotional stability and maturity in your life. It is not automatic by getting older. I know some people who have a lot of snow on top, and they're still not very emotionally mature. And if you think I'm going to call their names, you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. That would be a clear sign that I was the one who was emotionally immature, correct? Am I always emotionally mature? My wife says she could point out numerous times that I'm not. I'm, I would never say that about her. But I might lie to cover it up. Another sign of emotional maturity, right? To be emotionally maturity, have emotional maturity means you can take stuff in, analyze it before you respond. Most times when I'm refereeing conversations between church members, it's because there was very little self-awareness between the two or one of the two in an argument that ensued. Self-awareness can move you beyond most arguments, not, agree, not, not saying you always agree, but it can move you beyond the anger and the, what I'd call the initial just spontaneous action without fully thinking something through. I had to learn that. Ministry in, does, gives you a choice. Either begin to grow up emotionally mature or else get killed. <laughs> you say, why is that? Because every time I have to get up at 2 a.m. in the morning after I've already had my Tylenol PM because somebody's in the hospital, I have to make an emotionally mature decision. They need me to go to the hospital versus I'm really too sleepy to get out of this bed. Right? Every time I go to meet someone who's just learned that their partner has died suddenly and unexpectedly, and they have not been told that yet. I have to be in control of my emotions if I'm going to help them. Every time that you face a difficult decision in your life that has a gut reaction with you, you are feeling things. It's not always appropriate for you to tell others before you've had the inner discussion with yourself about what you're feeling and what your response needs to be. And trust me, our world would be a whole lot better off if everybody could just go to the store and buy emotional maturity. But it doesn't happen, does it? Sometimes I look at my grandchildren and I think, man, do I need you for a week. Then after they've been there a day, I'm thinking, man, do you need to go home. <laughs> because I can't keep up with you enough to help you. You need to help me. And they usually do. Grandchildren do that for you. Besides that, they're faultless almost anyway, right? But the reality is we're always growing up. We never outgrow becoming more emotionally mature. We never outgrow needing to become more self-aware. Jesus is the only one who could do it perfectly, but he does lay down a model, and we'll, we'll be using the Gospels. Everything else is secondary to, the, to them and understanding Jesus completely. We'll be using gospel texts for the next several weeks to give you examples of the emotional maturity of Jesus. Now, you say, well, what is this emotional maturity thing you're talking about? I'm talking about knowing our emotions, managing our emotions, motivating ourselves, 
and recognizing emotions in others, according to one researcher, scientist. For another one, it is self-perception, self-expression, interpersonal relationships, decision-making, and stress management. In the stories about Jesus in the gospel, we'll have explicit statements where he will tell you what he's feeling. And Jesus felt compassion for them. Jesus wept. These are examples of Bible moments where we get a glimpse into the character of Jesus. There are also inferences that we can make from the sayings of Jesus that tell us how he was thinking about things themselves because of what he had of control of inside himself. Not only are there inferences, inferences to be made, but he also occasionally makes claims by the way that Jesus is portrayed in the gospel. They're written, and we're not, not going to determine if all the scripture the scripture is the scripture. We're not going to use the historical critical method. We're going to use the, what the text says about Jesus. What does the text say about this man? How do they portray him? So that's three ways we can learn about the emotional intelligence of Jesus since we can't administer a psychological test to him. And then lastly, EQ or emotional intelligence is implied in many of Jesus' admonitions. That's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks as we work on that together. They have implications for every individual, for every community of faith, and for every place that people are together, including in their own home. You say, it sounds like we're going to be analyzed. Yeah, yeah. There are things to do to help you determine where you are. There are things to understand that will slow your processes down and make you a better helper in God's desire to fish for people. I think I've done pretty good. That's less than 30 minutes on my first Sunday back. Some of you are saying, yeah, but you're not going to quit when you say that. Actually, I am. I am going to quit right there with this call as the ending comes. Because we are in a time when perhaps you find yourself struggling about something in your family, at your work, in your Sunday school class, with an individual, with your children or your grandchildren, with your neighbors next door. All of those are potential possibilities with how successful you're being in your career. And here's the thing. I'm inviting you take this journey with me. It's the most difficult book I've read in several years. You say, what does that mean? It means I'm underlining something that has to do with me or with people in general about real life things and almost every paragraph I'm reading in this book. It's slow reading. It's not a great big thick book, but it's packed with stuff. Next week, we will begin by taking a quick, a little more thorough look at Jesus and his emotions and also jumping into this idea self-awareness. If you're not willing to come on that journey, you're not going to benefit at all by it. If you come here with an idea of learning, it can be helpful to you. You say, what does that mean? It means some people, I say, well, why don't you go see counseling? And they say, sometimes, oftentimes, oh, counseling never helps. And I oftentimes say back, well, maybe you had the wrong counselor. Or maybe you're just not open to really, really using a counselor. I'm inviting you to come. And to be open to the way that you can continue to be transformed. But I can't make you be open. That's up to you. I'll invite you to go along with me. Because I'm going to use more illustrations about you than I am me. It's more fun that way. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to follow Jesus. And what scriptures say about his emotional intelligence. It's not easy. Anybody think that they're already following Jesus, there's nothing left to do. 
needs to go back to the first question. Are you ready to come? Are you ready to leave behind what you think you know and open yourself up to possibility, new ways of learning and understanding? And lastly, are you willing to be transformed? It was a bad idea. I told you before, Jesus made this decision to let people decide for themselves. Over and over, I tell him, Lord, you know that was a mistake. You know that's difficult for people to be transformed. Why don't you just go ahead and do it and get it over with? He said, nope, afraid not. They've got to live that out day after day, year after year, making that decision over and over again about am I going to be open? Am I going to follow? Am I willing to be changed? If you are, there is no end to how God will use you for his kingdom. There is no end to your experience of the joy that said he came to give you. If you are willing, there's no end to what will happen in this community of faith if just some of you are willing to take a serious journey with Jesus. But you may not. Just be quiet if you come and not understand. Just go ahead and worship and long if you're not going to get involved. But don't disturb the one next to you. They might really be struggling. And for goodness sake, don't see them struggling and offer to help. Right? We don't do that. We don't want people thinking we might care about them in our own church. Right? I mean, because, goodness gracious, you know, they don't say all kinds of things to us. They might reveal all kinds of things to us. They might frighten us by how badly they need us. I'm betting some of you are brave enough to take the journey. And if you're not, you're going to learn a few new terms along the way, right? You'll be a little smarter in your ears, between your ears. I just hope it amounts to us being smarter in our lives, too. So if you need to pray about that to get yourself open, you're invited to come right down here and pray while we sing. We're going to stand. We're going to sing as we always do. If you're here and you need Jesus, you don't know who, who Jesus is. You know if you want to follow him, I'd love to introduce you to him today as we stand and sing this song together. <laughs>